This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we are discussing Israel's arrival at Sinai and the ensuing covenant relationship with their God. We'll be covering Exodus 19 through 23. Yeah, so we've uh, made our way. We're going to be closing up in the next couple podcasts our discussion of Exodus. And we made our way through that story. So start in Genesis. (laughs) Jephesus. It's going to be one of those days. Genesis airplane. That's right. Started in Genesis and looked at uh, the preface, Genesis 1 through 11. Got some really big ideas, big ideas that are really important, like uh, the fact the story is good. Uh, We know who God is and how God feels about creation. We also know the central uh, struggle of human nature, of the human existence and the human experience is going to be insecurity and fear to trust that uh, things aren't okay, we're not enough, and we're not loved. And uh, in the middle of that, we met the family of God and the introduction what we called Genesis 12 through 50. And uh, we got introduced to some big ideas of what happens when when people do trust the story. Uh, they're not perfect. They make all kinds of mistakes. But when they do trust the story, it releases them to lay down their lives on behalf of other people. So they got hospitality. They've got self-sacrifice. They've, uh, they've got some chutzpah. They've got uh, love and compassion. Uh, they see the outsider. These are things that God's going to use in the DNA of his people to, to build on his story. So then the narrative begins. In the narrative, we, we talked about a tale of two kingdoms. Uh, you're always going to have an empire, uh, an, an imperial narrative, a narrative of empire that's built on fear, uh, built on if you don't do X, Y, and Z, if you don't secure self, if you don't try to preserve self, uh, the whole thing could come crashing down around you, and it's built on fear. And then there's a narrative of shalom. There's God's kingdom narrative, and it's a narrative that says, no, things aren't going to come crashing down. Uh, it's not ours to save. It's God's world. Uh, the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and uh, he's got this. And that means that we can lay down our lives on behalf of other people. Uh, we can show them what it means to rest. Uh, we can find uh, we can find a Genesis 1 reality where God just says, just trust me, just find the Sabbath. And uh, and that's what God's up to. But in order to do that, he's got to rescue his people out of the narrative of empire. And he's got to get Egypt out of his people, not just his people out of Egypt. And so we went through the story of the plagues and we talked all about that. We we crossed the Red Sea and we spoke of the three tests in the last couple of podcasts. Uh, God wanting to test uh, in order to know, to yada, uh, to experience his people and their heart and where they're at. And he tested their heart and he tested their soul and he tested their might or their very. Uh, and today they arrive at Sinai. So uh, in order to talk about today, I want to talk about ancient Eastern weddings. Do something a little different today. And we do have a presentation we for do. this one. So in fact, we do open that up and we'll be on the first slide here for the, for the wedding talk. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll do a little something a little different. Um, we'll kind of step away from the text and talk about some big concepts. Now, uh, I want to draw together what you're looking at there on the first slide of your presentation. And there's really no, uh, like some people want to know, where can I go to read up more on this? Um, I'm not aware at this point of any source that's going to talk about this complete package the way that I do. Um, I picked this up from my teacher, Ray Vanderlaan, uh, and and all of these pieces uh, are easily verified within ancient Eastern weddings. Some of them could arguably come from different periods of history. And so there's some poetic license I just want to let you know as I weave together the story, but you're going to understand why 
here very shortly. Um, but just know if you go looking at this, I was just reading an article yesterday, actually. Um, there was an article in the Zondervan Archaeological Study Bible, and uh, it was um, uh, it was talking about the uh, ancient Eastern weddings, and it had half of this list in just the notes that it had. Um, but I'm not aware of a source. I haven't gleaned this information from one particular source, but many sources and, and really from the teaching of my teacher. So uh, you can find bits and pieces all over, but... Anyway, does Ray uh, talk about these in any of his videos series? Uh, he's got some bits and pieces, but no, I learned this one in person and I'm not aware of a video lesson where he does this particular um, uh, package per se. He does talk on this topic, but he doesn't deal with this list as we're going to here. Um, and I think probably for some of the reasons that I just mentioned too, but... Uh, anyway, so ancient Eastern weddings were arranged uh, relationships. Um, they uh, it wasn't like I think a lot of times in our culture we get when we think arranged marriages we have like two images in our head, either they're free I choose my marriage like we do in our culture, or arranged marriage is always this harsh. Um, the father just says to heck with your desires and your future, my choice rules and the ancient. Eastern patriarchal culture was a lot different than that. The whole families got together to make this choice. Arranged marriages were about the entire family group, the entire Bedav, or the entire Mishpacha, as we've talked about before. Um, this entire group of people uh, helping you find a spouse that was a good fit for you. Because like the silliest idea would be to think that you, as a late adolescent with raging hormones, was going to be able to make a good decision. Like how silly would that be? I can assure you that I would not have made a good decision at that time. <laughs> yeah. We would probably not be the best judges of character and future spousehood, maybe, but that's how we do it. Um, so before we just like hand out this heavy critique of these crazy cultures, it's just good to kind of sit there and think critically about a different world 3,000 years ago. Um but nevertheless, uh, they arranged these marriages, the whole family groups together. They would want to find somebody that would not just be a good pick for for you personally, but also somebody that was the right, uh, to say social class would be wrong, especially in the Jewish world, um, because the Jewish world was structured a lot more off of your integrity and your righteousness and how far you were able to to study in the text. And and so if somebody thought, you know, and this, this groom-to-be, he may even have some suggestions. They had a grape harvest every year. And at the grape harvest, the um, the unmarried virgin women would don themselves in these white robes and they would dance in the wine presses to smash the grapes. And it was like the one time of the year where they, these virgin women kind of dressed up like this. And it was uh, the time when the single men who were all kind of thinking about who they might get paired up with would kind of stand around these wine presses. It was this weird kind of once a year kind of an opportunity. So maybe they even had some suggestions. Maybe they had went home and went, well, you know, mom and dad, as you think about it. You know, I was, I was looking at, oh, I wasn't looking, of course. I was, I was, I've been thinking maybe Rivka would be, would be the right, the right girl for me. Maybe, maybe. And they might think, yeah, maybe Rivka does come from a good family and he seems to be attracted to her. What a good idea. Or maybe they might say, oh man, Rivka's father. I've heard he doesn't use scales. He has some dishonest scales at his workplace. I don't know if that's the kind of girl I'd want you to marry. We're going to go somewhere else. But nevertheless, um, 
they would they would make this this pick for you. And uh, so once that uh, was decided, there'd be what was what would be called the betrothal. And so the son, the groom, would take off with his father to uh, the the girl that they thought they were going to ask to to wed um, the bride, the potential bride, and her village. And when they arrive at the village, uh, the dad would take a cup out of his pack and he would fill it with wine and he would hand it to the son. And the son would take this cup of wine and he would hand it to the potential bride. And he would say, this is the cup of a new covenant that I make with you today. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. Uh, And then he hands her the cup. If she takes the cup and drinks from it, it's her way of covenantally saying, yes, I accept your proposal. If she pushes the cup away, it's her opportunity to say, no, we have no records uh, in Jewish history of a girl ever turning down a proposal. doesn't mean she didn't. It just means we don't have any records of it, which is very interesting. It would be like spitting in the face of your parents. You've done all this work to arrange this marriage. No, thanks. I'm waiting for the next suitor. Well, and it seems like it's such a big deal. If, even if someone did say no, you wouldn't want to record it. Like, it's kind of embarrassing, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's because you've spent, you know, potentially years thinking about this potential relationship and you decide this is the right way to go. And then she says, no. Nah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Never thought about it that way. But yeah. So she, let's say she says yes, as uh, we always have record of her doing. And the groom leaves. He He now leaves to go prepare the house. So he goes back to his father's. Uh, town. He builds onto his father's house. Later in in history, it will be called an insula. That's a Latin term, but uh, that's what they ended up using to describe the homes that they built there. These multi-family dwellings. So they they weren't Greek and Western. They didn't live all independently out on their own. The idea was not to grow up and move out of the house. The idea was to grow up and stay in the house and help your father pursue his vocation, help your father pursue his legacy, and do all that kind of stuff. So he now goes back to his father's house, and he builds an extra room, and different ages of history did it differently. But oftentimes, this room would be a room that they would live in for the first year of their marriage, a honeymoon stage that we'll talk about here at the bottom of this list. Um, but he would go prepare this uh, this room, and he doesn't know how long this process is going to take. He has no idea. Only the father knows. Because uh, this is the dad's last opportunity to teach his son a lesson. So he might take, uh, he might be really generous and help him even build the extension and help him the whole time. He might make him do all the work on his own. He might even let him do most of the work and walk in one day and look around and be like, oh my goodness, is this the kind of work that you're going to put into your wife's house in the future? Like, Tear it all down and start all over again. You forgot electrical outlets in the Western Wall. Oh, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a major problem. You're going to have to start all over again. It's his last chance to kind of... So my point being, this groom has no idea. He doesn't know if he's going to be building this house for three weeks. He doesn't know if he's going to be building this house for three months. And he doesn't know if he's going to be building this house for three years. He literally has no idea. Nor does the bride or any of her family back home. All she knows and all they know is that this groom showed up. He proposed to this girl and then he left. And they all know that he's going to prepare the house that they're going to live in, but they don't know how long it's going to take. But one day, the father's going to walk in and he's going to say, you know, I, I think it's pretty much done. I think I think we're almost ready. Uh, so I think it's time. And so they're going to take off. The whole family is going to leave uh, to go to the village of the bride. 
and they could show up, uh, depends how far they have to travel. They could show up literally in the middle of the night. Um, you might even think of the story that Jesus told about the 10 uh, bridesmaids and their lamps. And five of them had oil in their lamps and five didn't. And you think, oh, that's a really weird story. In the context of ancient Eastern weddings, it's not a weird story at all. Like these bridesmaids have to be ready. Once that groom leaves, the party could be within days, weeks, months, years. You got to be ready at any time. Uh, because once he shows up, the party is going to get started. Uh, the ceremony is going to happen, and it doesn't matter if you're ready or not. If you're not ready, you're going to be left uh, locked out of the banquet. And and so, but eventually, the 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 bridegroom arrives, and I'm sure there would be a shout, and the lookout would tell everybody as they see the family coming in the distance. The bride is going to be whisked away to be consecrated. Uh, she'll take a big ritual bath. Um, and not just practically to be ready for the ceremony, but spiritually. This is a ritual cleansing. She, the word consecrate means to set apart. So she is setting herself apart for this relationship. She's setting herself apart for this special, holy, sacred moment. Um, she is consecrating herself, and she's prepared. Um, at that point, the shofar is sounded, uh, and, and that's when the ceremony gets started. The bride sometimes will even make an entrance. Later in history, she comes in being carried on a chair. and uh, But she'll make the entrance as the shofar is being sounded. At that point, the couple's going to gather under what's called the chupa. The chupa, not the chulupa. Everybody likes to look at that word and go, oh, the chulupa. No, the chupa. C-H-U-P-P-A-H. Uh, and they're going to gather under the chupa, this canopy that symbolizes the presence of God. And that's where they're going to essentially, we would say, take their vows, um, which is the next step. While they stand under the chupa, there's going to be the presentation of what's called the ketubah. And the ketubah is a covenant, and it's been prepared by the groom. It's usually 7, 10, 12 items that the groom is basically saying, this is, the, this is the foundation of a relationship. These are the main tenets that I want to build our marriage on. In the ancient world, the, the bride wasn't a part of making the ketubah, but she did get to accept or reject it. It was kind of another one of those places where she could reject it. But this is his opportunity to say to his bride, this is who I am. This is what's important to me. And this is what I hope is true of us as we're married together. Um, after the ceremony is done, there is the consummation of the wedding. Uh, there's a special room that has been set aside for the consummation of the marriage. And it sounds definitely weird in our, in our hyper-sexualized culture. Uh, but the best man stands outside the room and listens at the door for the deed to be done. Uh, and then uh, out he reaches in and they produce a bloody cloth because as we've talked about before with the blood path covenant, uh, she has to be able to prove what, Brent? Can you remember? Oh, she has to be able to prove that she was a virgin. Right. So she has to produce this bloody cloth proving her virginity. And once the best man has that, the whole place goes crazy and celebrates and everything is as it should be. And the wedding party ensues. So and, who's the best man in this scenario? Uh, a lot of, it seems like the majority of the bridal party is going to be some sort of family or people who are living with them, right? Yeah, oftentimes the case. In different points of history, it was definitely different. The one, In fact, the only biblical reference that I know of is John the Baptist is referred to uh, linguistically as Jesus's best man, uh, that he stands at the door waiting for the arrival um, 
I guess you could say, the arrival of the bridegroom, uh, waiting for the consummation of the great wedding between God and his people. And John the Baptist is referred to as that guy for Jesus. Um, But it's really not probably as ancient in history as we might like to think. But So the wedding is consummated. They exchange wedding gifts, which were prearranged. Um, but after the ceremony is a done deal and after the virginity is proved, uh, they exchange the bride price or the, the dowry or the wedding gifts or however you want to look at that. And then for the next year, after this, the, the party will go on for five, six, seven days. And, uh, and, and after that, they enter into what I call a honeymoon year. For one year, the book of Deuteronomy says they're not going to engage in uh, major communal responsibilities. They're not going to go to war, or he he can't go to war. Um, he's not going to farm the fields. He's he is going to take one year to get to know his new bride. And if you remember in this culture, uh, based on what we've just talked about, um, they didn't date, they didn't court, they didn't get to know each other. This guy showed up prearranged by your families. You didn't know him. And now all of a sudden you say yes, and there's kind of a mini party. He disappears. And the next time you see him, he shows up to (laughs) marry you. You consummate the wedding, and now you have to uh, figure out how to like each other, figure out how to love each other, figure out how to get to know each other. And it kind of goes totally backwards in our culture, but we'll talk about that more sometime when we talk about Song of Songs. Is that where we talk about the different kinds of love? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it'll be there. And it'll be a really good conversation. Um, But that kind of gives you an idea for Eastern weddings. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, if you go to the next slide, there's this verse in Exodus 19 where God makes a really interesting statement. Uh, Do you want to read that, Brent? Yeah, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yeah, so this is uttered when they get to Mount Sinai, and God is about ready to give them the Ten Commandments, and God is essentially saying, I want to enter into a special relationship with you. But the wording he uses there is unique. He he says, if you will agree to enter into the covenant, which I love that, there's no demand here. God rescues them from Egypt first. He doesn't rescue them from Egypt after they've agreed. He rescues them from Egypt, gets them to Mount Sinai, and then says, here's the deal. I'd like to be in a special covenant relationship with you as a nation. Um, If you're in, if you say yes, then you will be for me my treasured possession. Now, that phrase in the Hebrew, my treasured possession, is wedding talk, almost exclusively. That's what a groom calls his bride on their wedding day. And so it seems that what God is doing is God is essentially talking about this moment at Sinai as a wedding. In fact, five verses later, he's going to tell Moses, go consecrate the people, which feels a whole lot like, well, that's what we would do next if we're going to have a wedding. In fact, if we were to go back to our list, we could follow this entire narrative. So if you go to the next slide, we could follow this narrative all the way through the story of God's people. The betrothal would go all the way back to Genesis 12 through 15. Um, God came to Avram and he said, Avram, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. Well, what is that? That's a betrothal. That's a groom showing up and saying, I want you to leave your father's house and come with me to a place I'm going to prepare for you. And what kind of a covenant did they use three chapters later to signify this relationship, Brent? The blood path covenant. And what kind of a covenant was that in particular? A marriage covenant? Yeah, it was for engagement, right? Oh, it was engagement this engagement covenant. covenant, right? So it's an it's the exact 
kind of covenant you would expect if God's viewing this as a betrothal. So then later, the groom leaves. Uh, We could call that their time in Egypt when it appears that God has disappeared and they sit in Egypt, oppressed, crying out, where is their groom? And then the arrival of the bridegroom, well, that would be the story of Passover. Their bridegroom shows up. Uh, The bride is consecrated. God tells Moses to consecrate Israel. We just mentioned that, Exodus 19. Uh, The shofar is sounded. We're told that when they get to Sinai, we're told specifically about the sound of a trumpet in Exodus, I believe chapter 20, if I have my uh, references correct. And then they're going to gather under the hoopah, which would be the cloud at Mount Sinai. There's this gigantic cloud, we're told, that covers the mountain. In fact, one interesting thing is it says that Israel camps against the mountain or even under the mountain. So it seems to imply that they're under the hoopah, or at the very least, the term against we've actually seen before. It's the term konegdo. Can you remember where we saw konegdo? Uh, that's Genesis 2 or 3. Speaking of who? Uh, Eve. Speaking of Eve, the first bride, right? So all of this stuff is funneling straight towards this idea. And this uh, is still actually in the end of uh, chapter 19. Oh, okay, great. Still in the end of 19. Thank you for looking that up. Uh, they're going to present the ketubah. That's going to be the Ten Commandments. That is going to be in Exodus 20. Um, so the Ten Commandments there, that's going to be the ketubah. You, you think about it, you have two tablets, one for the bride, one for the groom, often the case in the ancient world. Uh, they got these 10 things on them that God says, this is what I want to define our relationship. This is the starting place. This is the foundation uh, for our relationship. There's a consummation of the wedding, which is going to be the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to serve as the honeymoon suite, in essence. And then uh, and you have the exchange of wedding gifts. If you ever listen to Orthodox Judaism much, you'll hear them talk about the law as their gifts. It's God's gifts to them, sometimes even specifically as wedding gifts, because Judaism has always seen the connection to Sinai and a wedding. Um, And then, of course, you have the honeymoon year, which is all of that time wandering in the desert. In fact, uh, God said about their time in the desert, he said, I remember how you followed me through the desert like a bride, Jeremiah 2.2. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. God saw their time in the desert as, uh, as, a, as a honeymoon period. And then, I mean, you could look at Ezekiel 16, you could look at Ezekiel 23 and see God continue to use this metaphor. You could look at the entire book of Hosea. You could obviously look at the the book of Song of Songs. Um, But then, and we haven't talked about Jesus much yet on this podcast. He's a little ways down the road. But to talk about Jesus, Jesus said a lot of things about this. Uh, Consider his words in John 14. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I mean, that's that's straight up wedding talk right there. Um, how about this one from Mark 13? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father, talking about his return. He says, I don't know the hour of my return, only the Father knows. There's actually this story in the Talmud <laughs> about um, uh, a groom-to-be, and somebody asks him, they say, when is your 
when is your wedding or when, when, when will you finally have your wedding? And he throws his hat into the air and he says, nobody knows, not the angels in heaven, not the sun, the moon and the stars, not the sun, not me. Only my father knows the hour of, of he's just exasperated. And Jesus says, uh, line here just sounds very, very similar to what we found in the Talmud. Was that Talmud before or after Jesus' time? Technically after, but most people are going to say these come from possibly even before Jesus' time. So kind of a which comes Ancient first. oral tradition thing. Right, absolutely. That kind of uh, reminds me of a separate question. As far as the all of the stuff that the Israelites are experiencing through the story of the Exodus, is this going to be stuff that is already in place for these ancient Eastern weddings and God is taking that outline and making their story based on that? Or is their story going to go through all of these steps and then the Jews later will say, that was our wedding. And so we're going to model our weddings after what, what happened to them in the story or probably both or... Very likely a little bit of both. Um, there's definitely going to be a large conversation and debate about which comes first, the chicken or the egg. A lot of it is going to depend on where you see the Bible being written in history. Uh, obviously, if you picture a late writing, a later date for the penning of the Bible, you can obviously see those ideas influencing. So it all just kind of, it's probably a little bit of both. It's probably these elements existed when Sinai happened. They saw it as a wedding because it, and then later they talked about it, they embellished it even more as a wedding. And, or should I say, maybe even embellish their weddings even more as their own story and their own narrative. Could go either way. And there's one more reference too. Uh, you could find it in either 1 Corinthians 11 or Mark 14 when Jesus says, this is the cup of a new covenant that I make with you today when he's having the, la- the last supper. Uh, I will not drink of it again until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. That is just more wedding talk. So it's just kind of all over this story. Later on in this story, uh, obviously, if this is a wedding, we have ourselves a major problem. This all sounds like this wonderful fairy tale. It's all well and good. Oh, what a sweet romantic backdrop to the story of God's people. The problem is, is when Moses is coming down the mountain with his ketubah, uh, you can remember what story is happening. Golden calf. Right, right. He's up there. He's up with God on the mountain, transcribing the ketubah, having this conversation. And God says, man, you know, something really crazy is going on down there. You need to go check it out. So Moses goes down the mountain to find the people dancing and committing idolatry, which ultimately is what image, Brent? Yeah, Israel is not being faithful to her bridegroom. Right. At, at the, the wedding. At the wedding <laughs> ceremony, right? Like at the ceremony, I don't want to get crude with the pictures or the illustrations, but it's like the groom turns around to pick up the ketubah and he turns back around and his bride is committing adultery with one of the groomsmen. I don't want to make the golden calf a groomsman in this metaphor, but... Like up on the stage. Yeah. Like it's this wild, unbelievable, no... How in the world can this be? And you can even see this when you read the passage. Your next slide here has Exodus 32 uh, passage from there. It says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now that makes more sense all of a sudden. It's not just that he gets angry and throws and breaks the tablets. It's that he says, you've destroyed this covenant relationship. 
There's no way this ketubah means anything. And he shatters the ketubah. It's not just a temper tantrum that he throws. It's uh, this can't be what the relationship is going to be built on. So he took... Uh, a very different feel from from his anger when he killed the Egyptian. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he took the cat and he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water and made the Israelites drink it. And you're like, okay, well, that's an interesting little punishment, right? Yeah, it seems like a very strange thing to do. Right. Until we get to the book of Numbers. And here's one of your, okay, but which came first stories. But a Jew isn't going to nearly wrestle with that nearly as much as a Westerner is going to say. But of course, each story adds commentary to the other. But later on in the book of Numbers, we're, we're told about, and I have read scholars that would suggest that this isn't a brand new idea in Torah, that this is an idea that's present in other legal systems around them. This idea of uh, drinking some kind of substance to determine whether or not uh, an adulterous uh, woman is, is who she is. Uh, says she is. And so here in Numbers 5, listen to what it will say in Torah. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some of the dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as memorial offering and burn it on the altar. And after that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water and brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell, and her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure, but is clean, she will be uh, cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This, then, is the law of jealousy, when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure and married to her husband." passage that raises all kinds of questions for us two, 3,000 years later. But the big idea I don't want to stray from here is that what Moses does is essentially what Numbers uh, prescribes them to do. He takes the golden calf, he grinds it up, and he makes uh, the idolaters drink it. What's interesting is we're told that a bunch of people then die from a plague. This is exactly according to Numbers what you would expect. That seems to be God's, uh, God's judgment there. Um, but then this stunning thing happens, like when this whole story is finally done with and Moses isn't done, he's going to slaughter 3000 people and some more conversation we can have at another point about the rightfulness or wrongfulness of that. But Moses is going to go back up on the mountain. God's going to make a whole new set of tablets and he's going to pick right up where he left off. And it leaves you there sitting there going, wait, What? Like the groom kind of settles down the whole wedding party, gets everybody back in their seats, and then is just like, okay, now where were we? This is unbelievable. And it's the same God that we've encountered over and over and over again. This is the same God that put the rainbow in the sky and said, I'll remember the covenant. It's the same God that walked the blood path and said, I'll pay the price. It's the same God that put a ram uh, at the sacrifice of Isaac and said, I'll be the one to provide. It's the same God. It's the same God. It's the same God. This God of unbelievable forgiveness, unbelievable love, and unbelievable compassion for his people. Um, I just get so wound up about this because people always talk about the God of the Old Testament 
as this vengeful God. Oh, it's right there in the text, Marty. Uh, I mean, okay, lay it on me. You shall, uh, I, I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Right, right. Like, come on. I know, right? It's right there. He's laying it down. I know. Of course, he did say he was going to show love to a thousand generations. Ah, I forgot about that part. Yeah, a thousand to three. We always do. We always do. There's this passage that you're referencing where Moses wants to see God. He's like, I want to see you. And long story short, uh, which we'll do the story later, but God says, okay, before you can see me, you need to hear something. You need to hear who I am. Before you can see anything, you're really not even going to see me. You're going to see the back of where I was in the Hebrew. Um, But before you can even see anything, you need to hear something. I am Adonai, Adonai, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. There's like this whole paragraph of compassion and love, showing love to a thousand generations to those that love me. And the last sentence is what you read there, which is in a few other places as well, uh, showing, uh, punishing the third generation to those who hate me. And of course, we all focus on the third generation. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean that God punishes sin to the third generation? Totally missing the hyperbole of that paragraph, which is completely... A thousand generations, slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious and compassionate. This is who this God is. And we just run into it time and time and time again. But yet another time where we learn this lesson. Don't know if you got anything else that you see as we look through that passage. Oh, there's all kinds of fun stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, Just the, the questions about what the presence of God is like, like the cloud and like they're at the mountain and I don't know what the trumpet sounded like. Like I I just can't imagine what that experience must've been like for the Israelites. Yeah. It had to have been something else. And a lot of these pictures come from other parts of the Bible and, or, or we can say maybe the other parts of the Bible pull back to this image, however you want to look at that. But uh, yeah, this, the Shekinah people talk about uh, the Jews spoke of the Shekinah glory of God and, and this Shekinah presence was thick and dreadful, uh, sometimes described as a dark, sometimes just described as a cloud. Um, it ha- would have had to have been something to have been there for that. Yeah. yeah. There's this one passage, the smoke build up from it, like smoke from a furnace. Uh, let's see, the, the Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke build up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Right. Like, whew. yeah. And we're told in Deuteronomy that the people come to Moses. Um, and the, in fact, Jewish tradition says when you read the 10 commandments, you can actually tell where it happened because the first two commandments are, are more like God speaking to the people. And then all of a sudden the language kind of shifts and changes when you read it. And, and the, the Talmud talks about how it was, a, it was after the second command and, or we wouldn't even, we'll talk about the 10 commandments later, but what, what they would call the second commandment, the second word. And, and the people say, we can't hear this anymore. This is too dreadful. You need to speak to God or, or we're, we're going to die. And according to Deuteronomy, God says, oh, I wish that their hearts would always revere me. I wish they would always hold me in that kind of awe and that kind of reverence. Uh, so this is a good thing, Moses, come on up on the mountain and I'll give you the rest of the commandments and I'll let you talk to them. That's good. I kind of had the, uh, soundtrack for interstellar in my head. <laughs> just that, nice. that loud blaring sound, like, yeah. you know, and the vastness of, of space and, and the awe and wonder of what's happening. And right. like, it's probably a fraction of what 
the actual presence of God is like, but I mean, yeah. I don't know, like we can't, we can't put that into words. Right. It had to have been quite a wedding ceremony. Speaking of which, maybe we could close with uh, the Ten Commandments. If we were to like rephrase the Ten Commandments as a wedding ketubah, it helps us see exactly what God is doing. Um, so, you know, we, we, we got, you got Ten Commandments up in front of you? I got it. All right. How about you read, read them as they are, and then I'll restate them. Um, in fact, you read them, and I'll give you the parallel in, in weddings, wedding talk one by one. Okay. All right. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. All right. That would actually be two commands for the Jew. Um, But their first one would just be, I am the Lord, your God, who led you out of Egypt. If you were to put that in wedding talk, it would be, I am your husband. Number one, I am your husband. Now pick up there and go through the images. Uh, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Oh, man, I just love that. In wedding talk, that command says, have no other lovers. Don't even have pictures of other lovers. All right, next one. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In wedding talk, treat me with respect and do not solely my name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In wedding speak, keep a date night and set it aside for me, your husband. Make sure you're not doing any work on that night because I want to spend time with you, just the two of us. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In wedding talk, trust that my provision for you is enough. You shall not murder. Don't hurt yourself. (laughs) You shall not commit adultery. Protect your sexuality. You shall not steal. Don't take what's not yours. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Please tell the truth about yourself. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In wedding talk, be satisfied with what we have together in this life together. It's good stuff. It's a much better way to understand the Ten Commandments than these ten arbitrary rules brought down from the mountain, but a wedding, a ceremony, God saying, this is who I am. And this is what I hope is true about us. It's good. I love the part that follows that too. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you Mm. Mm. so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's really good. More testing. Oof. 
this side of the I story. mean what I mean what more do you want out of a wedding that's have really come to know who your spouse is absolutely yeah absolutely that's good love it yep all right is that all we got for this time for this time okay well if you love on the plus join us for discussion groups in moscow on tuesday or in pullman on wednesday if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon you can find me on twitter at eibcb and you can find more details about the show at baymontdiscipleship.com thanks for joining us on the baymont podcast and we'll talk to you again soon 